How many of you filled up your gas tanks this week? It's kind of painful, huh? You know, all of this um, bad economic news, particularly with regards to real estate here in Southern California, reminds me of the last time that Southern California went through a major down cycle in real estate. You know, it does happen, right? It goes up and it goes down. Well, right now it's going down. But I remember back to 1991, the last time we were in a down cycle in the real estate market was back then, the end of the 80s and into the early 90s. At that time, I was employed by Security Pacific Bank, and they informed me that uh, our family and I were going to be relocated to Southern California from Dallas, Texas, where we were living. And that was difficult enough news to move from the big D out here to the land of fruits and nuts. But uh, we uh, accommodated ourselves to that news. And so we were in the process, actually, of moving here that summer. And then we received the additional jolt that uh, Security Pacific Bank was merging with Bank of America and that they were going to lay off 20,000 people who were unnecessary in the new organization. So uh, there we were in the midst of a transfer from, from Big D out here, and uh, there was all kinds of uncertainty involved in that process. You know, they called it a merger, but actually it was a takeover. It was a takeover of Security Pacific, whose loan portfolio was absolutely stuffed full of non-performing Southern California real estate loans. And it took that bank down. So when we were uh, taken over by Bank of America, it didn't take long for us to learn there was a new sheriff in town. Okay? The Security Pacific culture, for those of us on the inside, it was very apparent, was no longer in existence. And that we were now under new ownership. And that new owner was Bank of America. And so it was new forms, new policies, new procedures. Everything became brand new because we were under new ownership. Well, that kind of illustrates Paul's message here in this second section of Romans chapter 6. So why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles there. Romans 6 Beginning in verse 15, if you're using one of those few Bibles, it's page 1130. We'll get you there to Romans chapter 6. Because Paul says here in Romans 6, beginning in verse 15 through the end of the chapter, that we are under new ownership and therefore everything has to change. Okay, everything has to change. And he actually has for us here in this section, verses 15 through 23, five behavior changing statements that we must understand and apply so that our lives will reflect the reality that we are under new ownership, that we are under new ownership. Now, Paul's been arguing here in the first 14 verses of this chapter that because of our union with Jesus Christ and his death, burial and resurrection, we have been delivered from the old realm. That which was over us and previously unbreakable, that is the power of sin, has now been broken in our lives. And we have been transferred to a new realm in which sin no longer holds absolute and total power over us. But we are in a position now to be able to say no to righteous, unrighteousness and yes to righteousness. We have the ability and the responsibility to cease offering our minds and our bodies as weapons of unrighteousness in the service of sin and to instead offer them as weapons of righteousness in the service of God. That's what he says in verse 13 here of chapter 6. And the ultimate reason for this new reality is our union with Christ in his death, burial and resurrection. But Paul gives a derivative reason, another reason, but a reason that derives from that in verse 14. And that reason is that sin will not be master over you, verse 14, for you are not under law, but under grace. He says that we have been delivered from that old realm and we've been delivered into another. 
And Paul equates our release from the law here in verse 14 as the reason we have freedom from the power of sin. Now remember, Paul has repeatedly stated throughout the first five chapters of this epistle to the Romans that the law's function is a sin-producing, sin-intensifying activity. And that it is opposite of the realm of grace in which we now live. That's his point in verse 14. Paul has told us, remember again, chapter 5, verse 20, that law increases the severity of sin. It draws it out. It intensifies it. He also tells us over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56, that the power of sin is the law. And so if we as believers were to remain under the law in that old realm, it would be impossible for sin not to have mastery over us. So the only way that the mastery of sin can be broken is we need to be transferred from the old realm, the realm of the law, into the new realm, the realm of grace. And that's his point here in verse 14. This is significant. Because if we are to break the practical power of sin in our life, it can only be broken by living in accordance with the reality that Paul says has occurred when we've been moved from one realm to the other. We need to live in the realm of grace where we have been transferred to. Now, the image of slavery, that is moving from one realm to another, flows through this entire section. And it is going to come to a focus here for us in the second half of the chapter, beginning in verse 15 and following to the end. The word slave, doulos, is used eight times in verses 15 through 23. It is the dominant motif of this new section of Paul's statements here on sanctification. It is all about slavery. In fact, the word obedience and obey are used an additional three times. So we have the word slave used eight times. We have obey and obedience used three times. This is all about slavery and all about who will you be obedient to. Now, Paul will admit for us, verse 19, you see at the beginning of the verse, I am speaking in human terms. He will admit to us that uh, this picture of slavery is not the all-encompassing picture of the Christian life, but it is an important picture nonetheless. And he's, he's going to employ that to help us understand the reality of what is going on in our lives. It's a necessary picture because it portrays very vividly, very accurately the life-changing truth that freedom from sin for a Christian is not freedom to sin. Okay, transfer from one realm to another, transfer from the realm where sin was your master under law and transfer into the realm in which you live now under grace is a transfer from the power of sin. But it is not a transfer to sin in the sense that you can do whatever you want. And so Paul's going to talk about that here. Jesus himself said, by the way, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. There are two competing masters going on in this section here. And Jesus said you cannot serve two masters, for you will either hate the one and love the other. You will hold to the one and despise the other. No one can serve two masters. That is a fundamental truth. A man will either serve sin or he will serve righteousness. He will serve Satan or he will serve God. But he cannot serve both. He cannot serve both. And that is the message that we need to understand coming out of this. You are a slave to sin or you are a slave to righteousness. Paul says if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, you have been indicative. You have been transferred into the new realm of grace, into the slavery of righteousness. You are now to begin to live like who you really are and to no longer live in the slavery of unrighteousness. So let's look together at these statements. We're just going to manage to look at two of them this morning. The first one is that we are never free to sin. Verse 15, we are never free to sin. Now, before we uh, take that up and draw it out a little bit, let's just review for a moment a question. My question for you is, is sin all that bad? Is sin all that bad? I think it's good to remind ourselves of this discussion. Okay. 
Is sin all that bad that we should worry about whose slavery we really are enlisted in? Is sin all that bad? Well, let me answer the question for you. Sin is the most destructive, deceitful, debilitating, and ultimately deadly power that ever has or ever will come into the stream of humanity. That is sin. It is destructive, it is deceitful, it is debilitating, and it is ultimately deadly. It is our mortal enemy. It came into the stream of humanity shortly after creation, and it will only be finally and permanently overthrown with the destruction and recreation of this earth. And at that time, the banishment of all beings who have not by faith turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be banished to the lake of fire. That's how serious sin is. Even the language that the Bible uses to describe sin speak of its seriousness. It's spoken of as missing the mark, missing the mark that is God's standard of perfection, falling short of his standard of perfection. Sin is spoken of in the Bible as a crookedness or a perversity. The idea there is a twistedness or a bent out of being bent out of shape. The Bible speaks of sin as rebellion and trespass. And that includes the idea of being lawbreakers, lawbreakers. The Bible speaks of sin as wickedness, evil, unrighteousness, a lawlessness, a turning aside, deceitfulness, guilt, disobedience, and defilement. And that sort of catches up the whole category of moral offenses. Beyond that, there are all the individual terms that the Bible uses for sin. When it's spoken of specific sins, such as stealing and lying and murder and adultery and fornication and on and on and on. There is no limit, it seems, to the, to the description of the, of the wickedness of sin that God gives us in the Scriptures. Beyond that, we're told that sin is incurable. By man's own effort and power, it is an incurable, 100% fatal disease, and everyone has it. The prophet Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 13:23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. No, the leopard cannot change his spots. No, the Ethiopian cannot change his skin color. Therefore, no, you who are accustomed to doing evil cannot do good. Cannot do good. Sin dominates our thinking. It dominates our living. Its fountainhead lies deep within the fallen human heart. Again, the prophet Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Or the words of Jesus himself, Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Sin dominates at the very center of who we are. In fact, a good and concise definition of sin might be the following. Sin is any personal lack of conformity to the moral character and desire of your creator, which ultimately displays a deification of self and a dethronement of God. It is, to repeat, a lack of personal conformity to the moral character and desire of your Creator. That is, that you do not conform to who He is and who He would have you to be. And ultimately the reason you don't do that is because you are wanting to place yourself on the throne and to take God off. You want to be your own boss. Make your own rules. That's sin. So now, take a look at verse 15. And let's look at Paul's question. 
What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Now the question has a little more force to it, doesn't it? It's a little more pointed. Notice the same construction, by the way, here in verse 15 that we have essentially up in verse 1. This same kind of question, it brackets this section here. Where in verse 1, it's a little bit different there. Paul's addressing the idea of the believer remaining in a state of sin in order to gain more grace. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Do we continue in sin that grace might increase? Because Paul had said earlier that where grace increased, or sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace superabounded. And so Paul's earlier question was, well, then should we just go ahead and stay involved in sin so that God will pour out more and more grace upon us and give himself more and more glory? His answer, what are you, crazy? May it never be, verse 2. So Paul has a, a second and similar construction here in verse 15. And here he addresses the issue of sinning because of grace. Okay, one was to sin so that grace might abound. This one is to sin because we live in the new realm of grace, that we are no longer under the realm of the law, verse 14, but we are living in the realm of grace. Therefore, should we sin? Is it okay? Does it matter anymore? Now that we no longer reside under the law, that's his question. Does it matter if a Christian sins now that he lives in the new realm of grace? Now that you have been delivered from the law, is it okay to sin? Paul answers this foolish question in the same way he answered it in verse 1. Do you see it? May May it never be. No, 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 no. That is an abhorrent idea, an abhorrent thought. Paul says that is a complete misunderstanding of what it means to live in the realm of grace. To be delivered from the realm of the law is not then to inhabit sin. Paul says absolutely not. Grace is a liberating power, but it is also a constraining power at the same time. It liberates from the law, but it constrains one's thoughts and actions At the same time, so we are never, ever thrown into a place where we are wide open to do whatever it is we might want to do. Now, the constraint of grace comes through our willing obedience as a result of a new heart and a new mind, a new heart, new mind that come to us in conversion. Beyond that, it is a new life motivated by a new indwelling power that is God Himself through His very Holy Spirit. We read earlier Romans chapter 8. Sanctification, we haven't got there yet. When We will get to Romans 8, Lord willing. But when we get there, Paul is going to bring into the discussion the role of the Spirit of God in this whole process. We just haven't got there yet. So being freed, being in a state of grace is not unlimited autonomy. It is not unlimited autonomy. It's not being able to do whatever you want. Freedom is being set free from the bondage of sin and transferred into the bondage of righteousness. Delivered from the slavery of sin and into the slavery of obedience to God. We are never free to sin, Paul says. Second behavior changing statement is verse 16. And that is that voluntary obedience produces slavery. Voluntary obedience produces slavery. Look at verse 16. Paul says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Notice he begins with the do you not know? Same construction again you saw in verse 3. Do you not know? He's reminding them of a, of a truth that they do know, that they should know, that would explain the answer to the question that he's already raised. And so here in verse 16, Paul cites as evidence for his statement regarding the absurdity of using Christian freedom as an excuse for sin. The common knowledge that whoever you are habitually presenting yourself to in obedience is the one or the thing which will become your master. 
You will become a slave to whoever or whatever you continually obey. That's the point. Now, this is easy, probably for Paul's readers, maybe easier than ours, because they lived in a day and an age when slavery was a common occurrence. Slavery was very much a part of the Roman Empire at this time, particularly in urban areas. One scholar estimates that the city of Corinth, from which this letter to the Romans was written, that one third of the population of that city were slaves at the time Paul wrote this letter. So slavery was a very common occurrence for them. People entered into slavery in really one of two ways, typically in those days. One is that they were captured in war. And so they therefore became slaves because of the fact that they were captured. But the other way, and probably the way that lies a little bit behind this, is that people who were in economic despair would sell themselves into slavery in order to work off their debts or to have a means of livelihood by which they might provide for themselves and for their family. So they would enter voluntarily into slavery for economic purposes. That is different, radically different than the wicked Slavery of which this country was a part in the earlier centuries. Okay, so it's a different kind of slavery, a common slavery that was that people understood and could derive this principle where Paul says, do you not know? You know, Jesus himself said in John eight thirty four, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. So this idea is very, very well known. Whatever and whoever you give yourself to in obedience willingly becomes your master, becomes your master. Notice, by the way, verse 16 has an either or construction. Do you see that at the end of the verse? You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. This either or construction tells us that there is no third place to go. There's no middle ground. You're either a slave of this or you are a slave of that. Okay? Everyone is a slave. It's either of sin or of righteousness. Notice also that Paul says that it is you are slaves of the one whom you obey. The one whom you obey. That is that obedience is, is what brings about the slavery. It's what brings about the slavery. The contrast here that he's giving us is, is, is speaking of the essence of slavery as being obedience. Sin is not something that you can't help doing, Paul would tell you. Sin is something that you do by choice. You make a choice to sin. Or you make a choice not to sin. It is a choice. And because it, it is a choice, sinners can be forgiven and sin can be forgiven, but it can never be excused. It cannot be excused as something you can't help yourself with. It is always a choice that we make. We choose to obey sin or we choose to obey righteousness. One or the other. There's a good book, I've mentioned it before, it's called Changed Into His Image by Jim Berg. And in there he has a great little saying, I think it's very helpful, very instructive. He says, there are just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. I like that. Just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. It's that either or construction. There is no third choice, beloved. Every situation that we come into, we have but one of two choices. We will please God or we will please ourselves. And what characterizes our life tells us whose slave we really are. This verse is talking about a universal law. A universal law, and that is that you become the moral subject of what you do. You become the moral slave of what you do. You've heard the expression, you are what you eat, right? You are what you eat. This is the moral correspondent. You become a slave to that which you willingly obey. Whatever it is you are willingly obeying, whomever you are willingly obeying, it is to him or to it that you become a slave. When you yield to sin, 
then sin has a moral grip upon you. It has a moral grip upon you. For example, if you lie once, you are likely to lie again. And then lying has you in its power. Lying once leads to the likelihood of lying again and then again and then again until lying characterizes your life and you are in the grip of that sin. Peter says, Second Peter 2.19, by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Now there's a willingness involved here in verse 16. We see it in the verb obey. You are slaves of the one whom you obey. Hupakuo in the Greek, it speaks of a willing obedience. And Paul says also, at the beginning of the verse, do you not know that when you present yourself, we talked about that verb last time, presenting, it's the idea of, of uh, willingly giving yourself in service to someone. So Paul says that whoever you willingly give yourself in service to, if it be sin, then you will become sin's slave. If it will be Christ, then you will become his slave. It's also worth noting here that Paul is using indicative verbs. If we get anything out of all of this, we'll probably get that grammar lesson, right? Paul is using indicative verbs here. Indicative verbs state reality. Okay, these are statements of reality. Paul is not saying that a Christian ought to be a slave of righteousness. He is saying a Christian is a slave of righteousness and cannot possibly be anything else. That is who we are as Christians. We are slaves of righteousness. The rub comes is that when we don't live like who we really are, that we live like the old man, and rather than living like the new. Paul says that our slavery is not a legal status, but a living experience. It is a living experience. We are no longer allowed or required to participate in the living experience of sin. We are to be living in righteousness. The other thing that we need to talk about here is the consequences of our slavery. You see at the end of the verse, your slaves are the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. You continue on down through the chapter to the end, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is contrasting eternal death and eternal life. The consequences, the stakes here are very, very high. They carry all the way into eternity. How we live our lives speaks about who we really are. How we live speaks about who we really are. John said, 1 John chapter 3, verses 9-10, through 10, No one who is born of God, practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. What characterizes our life speaks volumes about who we really are. Folks, it's not about your profession of faith. It is your possession of faith and if you have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ by faith as your atoning sacrifice then you are the scripture says his child and you have been delivered from the old realm the bondage and slavery of sin and you've been placed into the new realm of grace in which you are in bondage and slavery to Christ so therefore stop living like you are in the old world and live in the new one and if you don't stop living like you are in the old world, then John would say you never move to the new one. It's eternally serious. Eternally serious. How does sin enslave us? How does sin enslave you? Through guilt through pleasure, through behavioral and thought patterns. That's how sin grips your soul. 
Maybe I can illustrate this whole principle here by talking about cigarette smoking. Cigarette smoking. Smoking cigarettes is a choice that a person makes. It is a choice they make. If a person smokes two packs of cigarettes per day, they make 40 individual decisions to smoke each and every day. That's why I chose cigarette smoking, by the way. 40 separate decisions to commit the same behavior or activity every single day. At any point along the way, they could stop. Isn't that true? At any point along the way, they could say, no, I will not smoke any longer. But they continue to give in. They continue to give in. And so one cigarette becomes two, becomes three, becomes four, becomes a pack, becomes two packs, becomes three packs. And so what has happened is that a a slavery has occurred because of the willing choice made over and over and over again to submit to the same kind of behavior. Ultimately, it leads to what I say are called a behavioral slavery as well. For cigarette smoking, it's the need to have something in your mouth. It's a certain life pattern, something you do after a meal. It's it's something you do when you're under stress. Ultimately, there's a physical addiction involved to the drug called nicotine. So cigarette smoking in and of itself is, I think, a great illustration of this process of yielding yourself to sin until it becomes your slave. When you add the moral component of guilt, it is relatively easy to see how the same process that leads to someone becoming a chain smoker leads to the process of enslaving people to sins like drunkenness, pornography, masturbation, homosexuality. It is easy to see how that slavery forms. It is the same pattern of a decision and then another decision and then another decision until it becomes the slavery of your life. But I don't want to focus this morning on some of those sins. I want to talk about others. I want to talk about sins that are still produce slavery, but maybe they're a little more socially acceptable within the church. Sins that still enslave you and I have the potential to do so anyway. And they betray the reality of our new ownership in Jesus Christ. So I've given you a list of them there. There are seven of them. Seven areas where believers in Jesus Christ can become enslaved to sin. So let's talk about them. The first I call marital conflict. Marital conflict. About ten heads just snapped up. That's good. The rest of you should pay attention, okay? (laughs) Let's say you grew up in a home where yelling and fighting was the norm. Let's just suppose that. Suppose you grew up in a home where yelling and fighting was the norm within the home. Let's further suppose that as a child, you sinfully chose to respond to that environment by either withdrawing from it or by entering into the fray and becoming a yeller yourself. Okay, that was your sinful choice and response that you made to this environment in which you were growing up. You sinfully withdrew or you sinfully launched yourself right in. That is, you have a passion for comfort or you have a passion for control. And so over time, those behavior patterns have become established in your life. Now you get married. Now you get married. And you are going to face the inevitable conflict that comes when two sinful people have to live in close relationship with one another. Okay? Guaranteed. So what do you do? What do you do when the conflict that is inevitable to a marriage comes? How do you respond? You're faced with a decision. Do you run away and give in to that old pattern or... Do you strike first? Maybe that's your pattern. When the conflict comes, you strike first. Or when the conflict comes, you see it coming and you run. Or do you make a decision to respond in a godly way with gentleness, patience, humility, and loving words? 
Every time you revert to your own sinful pattern of slavery, you deepen the ruts of the slavery. You may even feel physical symptoms in the midst of the, con- uh, the conflict. I mean, maybe you get sick to your stomach. Maybe there's panic attacks that come upon you. There can be all kinds of physical symptoms that are pushing you, driving you, leading you towards that old behavior pattern. But every time the conflict comes, Paul would say, make a decision to be a slave of righteousness. Don't give in to the old. Live like you belong in the new. And so make a decision to respond to the conflict according to the Word of God. Respond with humility. Respond with patience. Respond with loving words. And if you will do that over time, what will happen is a new slavery will be established in your life that is the slavery of righteousness. And the old pattern will be no longer there. Let's talk about parenting. Another illustration, parenting. How do you respond when somebody approaches you about an incident involving your child? How do you respond when somebody comes to you and there's been an incident and your child is involved? What is your immediate response? If you've been practicing a sinful pattern of refusing to accept the possibility that your child could be guilty of anything because of your pride, then we know what your response will be, right? We know what it'll be. But if you have been practicing a pattern of being humble and approachable and welcoming somebody who would come to speak to you about your child because you understand that your child is not perfect and this provides a teaching opportunity to help this child to grow in godliness, then you will respond in a different way. You will be in a slavery to righteousness. So how are you going to respond? Is it going to be the slavery of unrighteousness and sin, which is that you can't talk to me about my child without me popping a gasket, right? Or are you going to say, tell me what he did this time, okay? And receive the truth. Receive the truth. There's another one for you. Leisure. Leisure time. Every time we say yes to turning on the television or the video game when we should be doing something else like schoolwork or household chores or yard work or reading our Bible or some other book of good Christian theology. Every time we say yes to the TV, yes to the video game and no to something else, then what will happen is that over time we will become further and further enslaved to our own laziness. Our own laziness. The lusts of the flesh will dominate our lives. We will live as, a, as effective slaves to our own laziness and lust. But every time we say no to the TV, no to the video game when there is something that should be done, and we say yes to the thing that's supposed to be done, we develop the pattern, the slavery of righteousness or obedience. And eventually, the tyranny of leisure loses its grip on our soul and we begin to live a life of self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. Let's talk about materialism. Materialism and greed. By the way, I want to be an equal opportunity offender this morning, so... I sat down and tried to think about things that would step on everybody's toes, including my own, as we go through this. I won't tell you which of these is my struggle, but I'm here too, okay? So let's talk about materialism and greed. Every time we impulse buy or set out to acquire something that we have seen somebody else with, we further strengthen our slavery to materialism and greed. Every time. Every time you walk and buy something in the store and you just grab it and throw it in your cart because it's there, because it's attractively displayed. Every time that you visit someone's home and they have something and then you go home and you buy it because they have it. 
When you do that, every time you do that, you further deepen your slavery to materialism and greed. Now, when you use debt to further that activity, all you do is you snap the shackles on your ankles that much tighter. That much tighter. Conversely, when we refuse to impulse buy, when we refuse to buy something just because the Nakamoras have it, okay, and instead we wait, we pray, we think, we talk, we even seek counsel as needed, and exercise self-control in this area, then what happens is you begin to lose your battery. What happens is that we strengthen our slavery to righteousness. And we begin to break the slavery to materialism and greed. We begin to live like who we really are and not like who we once were. We substitute slavery to righteousness for slavery to sin. Gluttony. Let's talk about gluttony. When we automatically supersize our food and drink orders without giving thought to our needs, we are exhibiting the characteristics of slavery to our appetite. Every time you go into Starbucks and you order the biggest one they offer, without giving any thought to what it is you really need, every time you go to the fast food place and you supersize it, without thinking about, do I need this much food, you are displaying the characteristics of someone who is enslaved to their appetite. Enslaved to their appetite. When you can't pass by the cookie jar... Or the candy dish or the bag of potato chips without eating just one. Then you are displaying that you are in bondage to your appetite. When you eat and you're not even hungry, you are displaying gluttony. Gluttony. Because what that says about you is that you are seeking to find your satisfaction not in your God but in your stomach, in your stomach, you have substituted food for God. And that is idolatry. It is idolatry. Each and every time, listen to me, each and every time you or I eat, we are making a decision. It is a decision we make. Do we need to eat or are we eating because it's there? It's there. It speaks volumes about what's going on inside us. Number six, gossip. Gossip. When you hear something negative about a person, even somebody that you don't even know, and you can't refrain from telling someone else about it, even your spouse... And even if you dress it up under the guise of needing to pray for that person, you are enslaved to the sin of gossip. You are enslaved to the sin of gossip. If you hear something negative and you can't keep it to yourself, you've got to tell someone else you are enslaved to gossip. It has become your master. Every time you hear the tantalizing morsel, you can't wait to pass it on. You can't wait to pass it on. You're enslaved. What has to happen is a decision has to be made. The decision has to be is when I hear this, I'm not going to tell anybody about it. I'm going to pray silently to God with regard to this. And I'm not going to tell anybody that I've heard this thing. I'm going to keep it between me and God. I'm going to silently pray for this individual. And every time you make that decision, what happens is, is you break this old grip and you establish this new one. You begin to live not as who you were, but as who you are, a child of God, not enslaved to gossip. 
And by the way, gossip is a deadly sin. And gossips will not inherit the kingdom of God. So be very, very careful. Very careful. Finally, evangelism. Evangelism. I needed to throw this one in here. This is kind of a catch-all for everyone else that I haven't offended yet. Evangelism. When you have an opportunity to speak for Jesus Christ and you choose not to, you choose not to in order to avoid embarrassment or maybe a potential conflict, what you are doing is you are making yourself a slave of the opinion of men. You are becoming a fearer of man. That is, that God's glory is no longer your consuming passion. You are worried about what people think of you. And that, at its core, is idolatry. It is idolatry. And so what has to happen is we have to make the decision to live like who we really are, and that is that we are a child of the King and we are commanded by Him to go into all the world and declare the Gospel. And so we must make the decision to do that. In all of these seven examples, we're like cigarette smokers. We're like cigarette smokers. In that they come to the decision comes to us all day long, repeatedly. Repeatedly. And so how many cigarettes are you going to smoke until you say no? How many times are we going to be enslaved to this same sin until we say no and we begin to live in slavery to righteousness? Now, this is not something we can do on our own. Okay? This is not pull yourself by, up by your bootstraps and, you know, suck it up, right? And just start doing it the right way. Look again, verse 14. The gospel is intimately woven into all of this. Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the realm of the law, but you are under what? Grace. Grace is the empowering force within your life that enables you and compels you to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Okay? That's huge. That's huge. You are to call upon what God has done for you and in you to enable you to begin to live as He says you really are. You must live like who you are and not like who you were. And if you continue to live your life like who you were, the only conclusion that can be reached is that you never became that new person. And that's a frightening conclusion. The general pattern of our life, beloved, reveals who our true master is. The general pattern of your life proves who your true master is. A life characterized by slavery to sin will result in death. It will result in death. A life characterized by obedience to the will of God is a life of righteousness and it bears the inescapable marks of eternal life. The life of God within the soul. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? These are serious questions. Some of you here this morning may think yourself free somehow. You may think yourself free. Maybe you're resistant to the gospel of Jesus Christ because you think that to follow Christ means that you have to give up the freedom that you believe you have. So you're going to stay free. But the truth is you are not free. You are not free. You are a slave of your own sinful nature. 
You cannot and you do not go through a single day of your life without constantly sinning and offending God. There is not one day that goes by that you can't and don't sin. So give up the illusion that you are somehow free and that to follow Christ is to is to live in bondage to him and you want no part of the bondage. You are in bondage. You are in slavery. You are a slave of your own lusts and sin. So listen to me. Listen carefully. When you turn to Jesus Christ by faith, you are exchanging one slavery for another. You are exchanging the slavery of sin for the slavery of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are turning from the harsh taskmaster of sin and you are turning to the master who is gentle and kind. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light, Jesus said. Will you come right now? You know who you are. Will you come right now? Or are you going to stay in your bondage to sin? We're going to sing here in a moment. And as we do, there will be some folks who will be making their way over to this lighted cross here. As they make their way over there, you come too. You come too because they want to open the Bible with you and to show you how the slavery of sin can be broken. How you can go from being the enemy of God to becoming His own chosen and adopted Son. Let me pray. Our Father, I pray that this message this morning would be used of You in a mighty way in our hearts. Not to discourage us of our Father and, and crush us under the weight of our own guilt. For let us turn to the cross of Jesus Christ and find there our release. But our Father, let it sober us. Let it be used of you to help us to realize the stakes involved. The reality that we are slaves of one or the other. Our Father, let us examine ourselves, test ourselves to see if we be in the faith. Unless, of course, we fail the test. Flood us with your grace, Lord, please. Let us this week make specific application to those areas in which we struggle. And our Father, help us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. For your name's sake, amen.